Well, it's good to see you all uh, this morning. It's great to be back, and uh, I left the best part of me at home, uh, which is Lisa. And uh, many of you know we've been on a, quite a journey with uh, our younger son, Quinn, uh, who is uh, recuperating from a brain bleed, a stroke, uh, brain surgery, all that kind of stuff. And, and with that, I just want to say thank you. Thanks for praying for him. For our family, it's been quite a journey and quite a, a grind and all of that, but uh, Lisa does say hello. Uh, she regrets that she can't be here, and we're looking forward to uh, a life where here soon, hopefully, we can be on the road together and uh, enjoying congregations again. I do want to say this, and I don't know what Derek, before Derek leaves and, and goes out the back, I do want to say this. Uh, the last couple of years, I know for our pastors, have been deeply challenging, uh, from the pandemic that hit us to, you know, the political fury that, that doesn't escape anywhere in our culture today and all of that stuff. Uh, our pastors have been working incredibly hard and a lot of times in places where we just weren't skilled or we weren't, just weren't trained or all of those things. And so when I get to churches, it gives me an opportunity to say thank you to our pastors and ask you to say thank you to your pastor as well. Would you do that for Pastor Derek and his family? Well done, Derek. It's, uh, you just kind of hold on by your fingernails uh, during all of this. And uh, again, it's just great to be here with you today uh, and celebrating and worshiping the Lord and uh, all of that. Somebody, when I came in, said, hello, Pastor Todd, or uh, they didn't do PT, which is my preference. Let me just say, BT has never worked well. It sounds bad, and, uh, but my favorite identity is that of pastor and and uh, when I think of all the years that, that Lisa and I and the boys were here, uh, they are cherished years. They are not forgotten years. Uh, they are years that are missed. And uh, you are folks that we uh, have grown, had grown, and continue to rely on to know that periodically the Lord will remind you to pray for us. I, when I left here, I never felt as vulnerable for the lack of prayer than when I went to our headquarters because I knew there were 200-some people that now... Um, probably prayed for us, but, you know, I was trusting the Lord now to remind you uh, to pray for us. And so what a, what a great thing for us to have our family here and for you to be praying and, and for us to be praying together. I'm excited to be here with you this morning to remind you of a simple fact that our God can do anything. I don't know when the last time you grabbed onto that thought was, but it's something that I grab onto regularly. Our God can do anything and I want you to think about what I'm saying in these terms. Would you grab your, uh, your smartphone or whatever your smart device is? Hold it up, would you? Excellent. Now, I'd like you to put that down, and would you put up your camera? All right? Excellent. Uh, you can put that down. How about hold up your video camera? Yeah. You can put that. How about your music player? Yeah. Yeah, a GPS, you want to hold that up? That's how I get from one place to another. These, they call them smartphones, but as smart as this may be, God is infinitely more intelligent, right? And as capable or as complex as these may be, God is, is far beyond that complexity. And as capable as these devices are, God is far more and infinitely more capable of doing anything for anyone, including us. In all my years here, probably the, the statement I'm, I'm probably remembered for more than anything is, is the God is great, God is good statement, that God is great enough to create the world, right? And all of that vastness, but he's never lost sight of us because he's good enough to care for each and every one of us. And I hold on to that, I cling to that truth, and I put it in front of you again this morning as a reminder to say, our God can do anything. He is capable of doing anything for anyone. And we believe that God is omniscient. He knows everything. We believe God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. We believe God is all present, uh, uh, omnipresent, which means He's everywhere present. And we, but I want you to also remember He's omnicapable, He's omnicompetent. When it comes to doing things, He can do that. With that understanding in mind this morning, I'd like to have you turn your attention to a message of hope from that weird and wild prophet Ezekiel. In fact, if you would, uh, hold up your Bibles. <laughs> 
right? So either tap your way there or turn your way there. I don't really care how you get there. Just get to Ezekiel chapter 37. And we're going to look at that, that famous, probably famous to many, familiar to many, interaction between the sovereign Lord and Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. This is a pretty compelling passage, one that is encouraging uh, for us. Ezekiel 37. The Lord took hold of me, and I was carried away by the Spirit of the Lord to a valley filled with bones. He led me around among the old dry bones and covered the valley floor. They were scattered everywhere across the ground. And then he asked me, Son of man, can these bones become living again? O sovereign Lord, I replied, you alone know the answer to that. And then he said to me, speak to these bones and say, dry bones, listen. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Look, I'm going to breathe into you and make you live again. I will put flesh and muscles on you and cover you with skin. I will put breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now I want to pause just for a moment and say that last phrase. You're going to see it a couple more times. Then you will know that I am the Lord as if the people of Israel had forgotten and they had. This whole scene is to remind the children of Israel just who God is. Verse 7, so I spoke these words just as he told me. Suddenly as I spoke there was a rattling noise. All across the valley, the bones of each body came together and attached themselves as they had been before. Then as I watched, muscles and flesh formed over the bones, then skin formed to cover their bodies, but they had no breath in them. Then he said to me, speak to the winds and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come, O breath, from the four winds, breathe into these dead bodies so that they may live again. So I spoke as he commanded me, and the wind entered the body, and they began to breathe. They all came to life, stood up on their feet, a great army of them. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones represent the people of Israel. They are saying, we have become old, dry bones. All hope is gone. Now give them this message from the sovereign Lord. O oh, my people, I will open your graves of exile and cause you to rise again. Then I will bring you back to the land of Israel. And when this happens, O oh, my people, you will know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and return to your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You will see this, I, that I have done everything. Just as I promised, I, the Lord, have spoken. Well, I'd like us to take this text and become battle scene investigators. Just for a moment, I want to stare at the scene as, as, as Ezekiel, as it was set before Ezekiel. The dry, the scattered, and the stacked up bones, they tell a story. But, but what is the story that these bones tell? First, I want you to know that the bones tell a story that give evidence that something horrifically catastrophic has occurred at this particular location. There are so many bones, there's skulls and, and, and skulls in one place, and the question is begged, why? What happened? Well, very simply, this is a graveyard. It's not an intended graveyard, but it's the result of an old battlefield where the Israelites lost, and they lost badly. It was a place of defeat for the army of Israel, as evidenced by all the bones and the skulls. Second, the evidence speaks of something tragic happening a long time ago. The condition of the bones, right? They're dry, they're brittle, they're cracked, they're crumbling, they're turning to dust. This state of decomposition adds to the impossibility of life emerging from these particular bones. From this, uh, emer- yeah, from these particular bones. Third, the evidence shows that a lack of proper handling was given of this situation. The bones were on the ground's surface. They weren't gathered. They weren't put away. It indicates that these soldiers were not given the proper burial expected of the time. 
And instead, the corpses were left out for undignified treatment of scavenging birds or animals of prey. So the bones definitely speak, right? They speak, and they speak for Yahweh, God, Jehovah. They represent the whole house of Israel, which is in effect spiritually dry at this time and dead. Each bone tells us about death when you read it. It talks about its horror. It talks about its intensity. And it talks about its finality. But they also speak for the living. (laughs) They have a message for us too, even to this day. Those living back then, though, were living in Babylonian exile. And how did you get into exile? Well, you got into exile through idolatry, by forgetting your God. Those are the things that got you into dire straits with Jehovah, the promise-keeping God who established the covenant. And when that covenant got broken over time after time after time, the Lord would discipline even those he loves. But I want you to know something about their crying out, how cynical it is, how how hopeless it is, how much despair is in what they're crying out. Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. But wait, the Spirit brought Ezekiel to this battlefield boneyard for a reason. And that reason was to set a stage for something amazing, something dramatic, something hopeful, something inspirational that would, that would lift the spirits and the lives of the Israelites, remaining Israelites, up and bring them back into fellowship with their Lord and allow them to become this major testimony throughout all of humankind in their day and even in ours. It's to set the stage for, God, for Ezekiel to see what God can do and what he will do for Israel. Furthermore, I, I do need you to know that the ghastly scene will inspire the prophet and give him confidence to speak a message, to prophesy a message of hope to the house of Israel. The Lord, and here's the encouragement, the Lord is not handcuffed by this situation. He's not handcuffed by this, this, this scene of death, let alone the disobedience that led to it. Or he's, not, he's not handcuffed by disease. He's not handcuffed by disaster. And instead of being resigned to the scene of human finality, God sees something different. Here's what God sees. He sees an opportunity. He sees an opportunity to bring hope. He sees an opportunity to bring life. Can these bones live again? Well, for us, it sure seems like they could. We're having the benefit of looking back. Ezekiel's having to stand there and give an answer to what really is a rhetorical question. Can these bones live again? Well, you would think, right, the, bo- the boneyard is a perfect place for something pretty amazing to happen. Death, defeat, destruction, decomposition, dust, displacement for those living in exile. Each of those was a rightful reward for how they had uh, walked away in rebellion and indifference to a sovereign Lord. But, but none of these negatives are the final word. And that's because human sin, human action isn't the final word. God has the final word. Human sin never has the final word, and most certainly Satan never has the final word. Only God has the final word. And the question in front of Ezekiel that's in front of us uh, from time to time in our lives is, can these bones live again? I want you to know that Ezekiel had the right answer. In case you wonder, is is there an appropriate answer? Ezekiel has the right answer. And Ezekiel's answer is interesting. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. How about that? A non-answer to God's rhetorical question. Ezekiel, can these bones live again? (laughs) Only you know, God. I think Ezekiel might feel proud of himself for coming up with that one. Right? He's not jumping to some presumption. He's not putting God on the hook. 
He's just admitting what I think all of us should admit. When we're confronted by all of these things that that lead us maybe to, to despair or wonder or doubt. When we hear that still small voice inside us say, do you think this will ever end? Do you think this situation confronting you and your family will cease? Do you think you'll have energy and focus and vision again? Well, I think the right answer is only you know, God. You alone know that. I want you to see what the divine opportunity of a great many bones presented to God. First, I want you to note that it presented God, the sovereign Lord, an opportunity to rebirth and reunite Israel physically and nationally. Ezekiel obeyed and prophesied to the bones, and consequently, I want you to note the, the rhythm here, right? Bone joined to bone. Tendons and ligaments pulled together these bones, and muscles formed and skins covered the skeletons, and there was structure. A very important part of our life is the structure that we have, the bones, all the things that hold together, but that doesn't make us alive. That just, that just gives us a form that can eventually function when life hits it. Now there were the systems that he added. Neurological synapses started firing in the brain. Hearts pump blood through the cardiovascular system and veins and arteries. Food will be consumed and the digestive system will kick into gear. There were individual entities that were forming faces, distinguishing features, etc. But no life. So the question still is in front of him. Can these bones live again? Can these bones that look more like human beings now, can these live again? It seems possible, but sovereign Lord, only you know. That's, that's the right answer. And second, the great many bones presented the sovereign Lord with an opportunity to revive Israel spiritually. Ezekiel obediently prophesied to the breath, and the four winds delivered. In the Old Testament, The word ruach is the word for wind or spirit wind. And he entered through the nostrils of each nose. Imagine the scene when the breath entered the nostrils and expanded the lungs, right? Eyes pop open. Kind of intimidating, kind of scary, but eyes pop open. Each body gets it to its feet in its own way. Stunned silence moves to quizzical chatter and maybe even laughter. Giddy chuckles turn to deep belly laughs, joyful wailing and triumphal shouting. Somebody yells, hey, we were dead, but now we're alive. And another one yells, thinking he's funny, hey, Ben, you never look better. There's plenty of high fives. Jumping, dancing, running. This is life. These are the reactions of bones coming to life and living again. These are the reactions of people who've been touched, inspired, infused with the spirit wind of Yahweh. God promised it, right? I will put my spirit where? Get the preposition right. I will put my spirit about you. I'll put my spirit around you. I'll put my spirit above you. I'll put my spirit below you. Now I'll put my spirit in you. I'll put my spirit inside of you. I will be in you. And that not that one of the great tenets of the Christian faith? Is that when we yield our hearts to Jesus Christ, his spirit comes inside of us and he's forming Jesus outside of us from the inside out. It's amazing. Not only will I put my spirit in you, he promised, I will put my spirit in you and you will, what? Live. You will live. What a promise from the sovereign promise-keeping Jehovah. You will live. But now, as we're confronted or reminded by what God can do, I think we have to reckon with our own occasional doubt. Anybody here have doubts? Maybe you doubt you're going to get out of here in time for lunch. I don't know. I'll do my best. I'll do my best. Perhaps you've got to deal with your own chronic cynicism. 
Boy, that can be a mess. How about our own fearful fatalism? Folks, I, ha- I hate to say it, but this is, this is what's true about our own sinful nature. We, we have a propensity, we have a tendency for declaring things dead. That's, that's what we do. We're, we're, we're gifted at that. Since we can't play the role of creator, we choose the role of coroner. More times than not. We naturally lean into that role, and since we can't bring things to life, we lean into determining that the end has come. But is what we think and is what we say really all that important to a sovereign God who can do anything? Seriously, do we have the last word? Some people look at their passionless, emotionally brittle marriage, and they pronounce it flatlined. I've seen it all, all my professional career. But what does God see in there? What would God say to that particular relationship if allowed the full access to come in there and speak to it? What could God do if he asked the question, can this marriage be vibrant again? Imagine what God could do if a husband and wife were to say, only you know God. And put themselves in a position for the Lord to breathe afresh into that relationship. Some look at their financial situation, particularly their indebtedness, their mortgages, their credit card debt, whatever it may be. And they they declare their finances gone or dead. But what does God see? What would God say if, if if he was allowed to speak into that situation? What could God do? The God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. What could God do to resurrect a person, a couple, a family financially? If we just simply say, you know, God, you alone know. Some listen to their diagnosis and determine at the end of their, that the end of their life has come. But what does God see? What does God say? And what could God do? I've seen it time and time again. And have lived it more recently. Some look at their lack of purpose and they pronounce their lives as productively over. But again, what does God see? What would God say and what could God do? Some look at their sinful fall and declare themselves disqualified from serving uh, Jesus and and his kingdom. But what does God see? And what would God say? And what could God do? The question just I put in front of you this morning to wrestle with maybe for the rest of the day or the week or or not is this. What are you pronouncing dead these days? And then the question to follow up on that is really what do you have to inform a sovereign God? What are you pronouncing dead these days? Where are you standing in as the coroner? Versus trusting the creator. Who we sang already today about his amazing work of raising Jesus from the dead. Right? I mean, that alone is amazing. If you believe in a God who can raise the dead, then you're believing in a God who can do anything. Well, I want you to know that at any point within our days, there are a great many bones around us that tell a story. Terrible stories sometimes. There's, of course, good stories, great stories. And then there are other times that they're just terrible stories or discouraging stories or heartbreaking stories. And our hearts, we find, are drawn to them for some reason. Maybe it's defeated, the the story is maybe defeated by addiction. Withdrawn because of grief and loss. Broken by the consequences of bad decisions. Maybe those are some of the, the stories that are being told. Maybe uh, afraid because of repeated failure. Or maybe uh, spiritually dead because of sin. The question is then, can these bones live again? And I think like Ezekiel, we come at it from a standpoint of saying, you alone know God. 
Only you know if these bones can live again. So I want us to consider what we can do in the service of our great king when it comes to the stories that the bones tell about us, right? And these could be people that you live around, people that you work with, people that you, uh, you just intersect with on a, on a semi-annual basis, or maybe it's just a moment in time that you have to connect with somebody. There are four things that the screen will let you know that I just want you to see these, these four um, reminders that are pretty important. One, when it comes to serving and working with individuals whose story is telling you something that is difficult, first, I want you to let the Spirit take a hold of you. Let the Spirit take a hold of you. Second, Listen to what the Spirit says to you, right? That still small voice, that, that Spirit that is inside of you. Listen to that voice that you've, that you've come to understand. You know what? When I hear that voice, that voice does not lead me astray. That voice doesn't cause great anxiety in me. Though the message may be difficult, though the message may be somewhat intimidating, it, it, it's compelling, I want to walk in, the, in that voice. Third, do what the Spirit says to do. And fourth, leave the results to the sovereign Lord. Now, as I tell the next story, I just want you to, to look at those and consider them in light of the story that I want to share with you. It's a story about Mary, all right? It touches on all four of these points and uh, I need you to know that, that Mary would not ever, if I saw Mary, Mary wouldn't know that I call her Mary, okay? And you'll understand as I tell the story a little bit. It was several years ago, I was on a late night flight to Fort Wayne, Indiana from Atlanta. And it was the last leg home from a trip that started in Newark, New Jersey. So it was a long day and my flight home was at like nine o'clock. And I was really tired. And before I go on, since I was here for 18 years, most of you know my personality. I don't know that this is a huge shock to you. Um, which, by the way, I told Lisa before I left, I'll try not to embarrass the family. So I'm, I'm trying to keep my bishop personality as in front. But, you know, hopefully Todd cracks through here in a little bit. You need to know that when I hit my seat on a plane, I offer a cordial visit or a cordial, hello, how are you? And then everything else just shuts it all down. My phone comes out, I'm checking text messages, emails, Facebook posts, whatever, just I'm, I shut it down. And, and, or if I have a book, I start looking and glancing through the pages uh, and uh, I'm just sending the message to my seatmate. I'm not here to chat. It's good to know you. Our life was fine before we met. It'll be fine after. If that doesn't get it across, then I, I bring out my over-the-ear headphones, noise canceling, and I put those on, and I think the message is now fully sent. Let's have a good flight, and uh, uh, let's be safe. So I'm that passenger that says, let's not chat. My attention... But I need you to know that uh, my seat on that particular flight was 1B. Anybody ever sat in 1B on a, on a regional jet? You're the person whose knee just keeps getting hit as everybody turns to go into the plane. Your shoulder is the one that keeps getting hit with the bag that's not on the person's, you know, or, or the one that they're dragging in. It's not a bad seat for getting out, but you pay a price coming in. When I was in the terminal... Looking over my seat selection, there was nobody in the seat next to me, according to my app, thinking, this is going to be great. Seat, 1B, no one's in 1A, all by myself. This will be fine for the hour and a half that I'm on the flight. Well, once I got to my seat, I turned on my app again. Seat 1A was filled. The question now is, who is it? And there was one particular person that I remember in the terminal that was really loud. <laughs> I'm like, ah, chances of that or however many seats there are and, you know, all the other stuff that statisticians know that I don't know that make it even more unlikely that they'll have that seat. 
In walks this young lady with more stuff than she should hold. And if you know anything about the first row, there's no space to put anything under. You basically have to put everything up. The other problem with the, the front row of this plane is those things are always full before you even get on the plane. She's coming in with three bags and a salad. And as she turns the corner, let's see, how would it work? Be kind of like, she turns the corner, she looks at me, and she goes and points to her seat right next to me. I'm like, oh, it's her. Okay. This is going to be interesting. And it was interesting. She arrived, she was tall, she was young, she was blonde, she was... She should have had more clothes on than she did. <laughs> she was loud. She was clumsy. She found some space uh, uh, above, but not enough. So she came into our row with lots of stuff and her salad. We settled in, and eventually the plane took off. And she somehow got herself in a fetal position in the seat. And she was tired. She was asleep as we were taking off. Clearly, I'm paying attention to all of this that's going on, though I got my headphones on and all that stuff. I just don't know where this is going, but it's starting to feel kind of weird. We hit a pocket of turbulence like I've never hit before, and we're out of, everybody's out of their seats. Kids are screaming. <laughs> it's, it's just this whole thing of fear. She, she wakes up. I mean, she's up. She's out of the fetal position. She's talking. She's now tapping my shoulder. She wants to talk. And so I take my headphones off. And uh, I'm prepared for interaction with Mary. I uncovered one ear and leaned toward her. And she energetically said, I knew it. I knew it. Because I had my phone on, and my phone has, has a, a picture of a cross that I carry, um, or that I have a picture in my office, and I had that on there, and she, she just pointed, she goes, I knew it, I knew it. And I'm like, what'd you know? She said, God has been showing me signs all day. You have a cross on your phone. I, I just knew it. So I need you to know this about Mary. Mary was spiritual, but not religious. And she proudly admitted to reading through the Bible seven times, but she considered it equal to the Quran and Buddhist writings. She considered Jesus a good man, but had her own struggles with believing that he alone could provide salvation and the promise of heaven for people. And I sat and I listened as her voice, her voice would cut through the drone of the plane engines. Others were clearly overhearing this conversation. And I wasn't too comfortable with the conversation, again, because though it was, seemed like it was begging an apologetics conversation, a theological discussion, there were other signs to this situation that were saying, no, it's, it's different than that. And I was trying to discern what the Spirit was saying to me to do in that situation. Her story was incredibly sad. Again, this is cutting through the drone of the engines, and here's, here's just a highlight of her story. She was flying from Texas to Fort Wayne to escape an abusive relationship with her girlfriend. She was safely seeking safety in her brother who lived close by where we would land. She grew up fatherless. And after her abusive father kicked, was kicked out of the house, there was some peace to that. But her mom was addicted to drugs by the time Mary was 12. At 14, she was a runaway. She was stripping by 18. She was addicted to Xanax, but now sober for two years. Yet, she was in some state of inebriation. She was fluent in profanity. This is, this is my flight when I'm beat tired. And trying to discern, Lord, what is it that you want to do out of this? And so it became clear to me sitting and letting the Spirit take hold of the situation, trying to discern what does the Spirit want me to say or do. It became clear that the divine appointment wasn't for apologetics. 
It wasn't to give a case for Jesus. That wasn't the purpose. It seemed more pastoral. It seemed more paternal to me. As I sensed that my role was to sit and listen to Mary. To point Jesus in simple terms. To make sure she felt protected from further harm, exploitation, or perversion. To become a new intercessor for her. Whether she would ever know it or not. This young lady, as I said a moment ago, would not respond to the name Mary. In fact, I don't know her name. We didn't exchange names. I refer to her by this name for two reasons. First, I want to pray for her by a name. Second, my goal has been to pray for her these many years with vision. And so Mary Magdala came to my mind. If you're not sure who Mary Magdala is, you need to read the Gospels and see how Jesus welcomed her into his orbit. As one who was notably a prostitute and and, and demon-possessed. These are who Jesus welcomed into his orbit. Mary Magdala was someone of questionable character and destructive experiences that Jesus befriended and transformed. And I, want, I, want, I found that I wanted God to do that in Mary because in some of the moments that we had a conversation, I, I, I found that I just want him to put a new spirit within her because she spoke about wanting to be a preschool teacher. Well, the, the young lady I was sitting next to would not be my child's preschool teacher. But maybe with a new spirit inside of her, she could be somebody's child's preschool teacher. Because that's what God does. He takes dried up, brittle, crumbled, dusty old bones. And he makes them live again. I imagine... As I pray for Mary, I imagine that God can do it. He did it with Mary of Magdala. He can do it with Mary of Delta, seat one, A. And as I've said many times, if he's done it before, he can do it again. If he did it with them, he can do it with you. Or he can do it with those whom you love. So with God, bones can live again. And only God knows. I don't know. Only God knows if Mary will come alive, and I hope she does, and so I pray for Mary of Delta Seat 1A. You've got Marys in your life, or if you haven't, you will. And my encouragement is, when you do, that you'll be able to let the Spirit take hold of you, right, from the inside out, that you'll listen to what the Spirit says to you, and you'll do what the Spirit says to do, and you'll leave the results to the sovereign God who alone knows if these bones will live again, right? So take the pressure off of you as I try to take the pressure off of me. God is far more capable than I am, and he is far more deserving of any of the glory that would come from dry bones living again. So while I've drawn your attention to the dry bones around us, my experience also tells me that there's dry bones among us. There's dry bones in this room as well. I want to speak of a word of encouragement to you because you're my brothers and sisters whose bones may be dried from discouragement, long seasons of uncertainty. Can I just, I'll pause there and just say that's what I've been living for about the last two years is a long season of uncertainty and it wears you out. Thankful my son lived through a brain bleed. Troubled that he stroked during a procedure before surgery, which delayed surgery for another nine months. Living in uncertainty, will he ever get the full use of his right hand, his right arm, his right leg, his right foot? Going through surgery, he comes out of surgery with losing about two-thirds of the progress over nine months that he had gained in his right arm, his right leg. Now he comes out with slowness of speech. Will he get that? 
and he comes out with a, just a wicked lack of short-term memory. Where things just aren't landing. And the question is, will, will it all come back together? And slowly, it is. And do we know that it's going to make the whole way back? No, but only you know God. And Quinn, for those of you who don't know Quinn, or for those of you who do, he's a great patient. He's pretty chill. And when I asked Quinn, after his original brain bleed, tried to say that five times, his original brain bleed in, 20, in July of 2020 to when he found out in September of 20 he would have to have invasive surgery to remove the problem, that felt like a gut punch to all of us to hear the doctor recommend, I'm going in. Quinn and I took a walk up our street that day, that next day, and I said, Quinn, this is what it felt like to me when Dr. Cohen said that. How did it feel to you? He said, I said, I just want to know, are you anxious? No. Are you scared? No. Are you angry? No. So what do you feel, kid? <laughs> and he goes, I'm grateful. I'm alive. I'm not dead. Some people don't live through these things. And so I thought, okay, if Quinn's going to walk through this thing with gratitude, then we're going to walk alongside Quinn with gratitude as well. Long seasons of uncertainty. And yeah, there's been times where there's been struggle and, and impatience, but for the most part, uh, particularly Lisa and Quinn, have walked through this with tremendous discipline and focus and gratitude. And I couldn't be more grateful. That's just our story. You have stories. You have stories like that where you've been touched by disease or affliction or seasons of uncertainty or defeat from self-inflicted or other, others' inflicted wounds or maybe doubt or, or even death. You've been touched by these things and you wonder, is it ever going to get better, Lord? Or the Lord asks you, do you think it'll get better? And you simply, today I would say, adopt the posture of Ezekiel with the attitude of, you know God. Because my focus will be on you. I can tell you how many times I, I would walk through this season with Quinn and, and different pastors, I would call them and they, they'd call me and ask, how, how is he doing? How are you guys doing? Some of you did. And I found myself in this posture like I've never been before. Well, of course I'm looking to God because where else? I, I, I know nowhere else to go. He's the one with the words of life. So no matter how difficult or challenging it is, where else are you going to go? He has proven himself faithful time and time and time again. If you were to look over your life history timeline, there are so many points that you would look to and say, he was faithful here, he was faithful here, he was faithful here, he was faithful here, I'm facing this, he'll be faithful here when I'm out here. His track record of faithfulness is that good because he's capable of doing anything. I do want you to know these, I, I want you to... Focus on three, we'll call them spiritual disciplines here as I draw this message to a close. Because if you find yourself in a season of dry bones, I believe these are three disciplines that will encourage you, they will help you, they will sustain you through everything. First of all, you need the Holy Scriptures. You need to be scripturally fed. Remember what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus asked the disciples, are you now going to leave me too? He said, Peter said, where will we go? You alone have the words of life. I'm just alluding to what I mentioned to a moment ago in my own life. You alone, Lord, have the, the words of life. And so breathed by the Spirit, these scriptures are living and active. And so when we doubt, the scriptures are certain. When we're discouraged, the, the scriptures convey that God loves us. Even through discipline, he's conveying he loves us. And when defeated, the scriptures remind us at the very end, if not always before, God wins. God wins. So, you desperately need to be scripture-fed. 
You desperately need the Holy Scripture. Second, you desperately need the Holy Spirit. You need to be Spirit-led, Spirit-filled, and Spirit-led. John 14, 23 is the hope of pneuma, the Greek word pneuma, uh, for spirit. And uh, John 14, 23 says, if you love me, the Father will love you, and we will come and make our home in your heart. I love this text, because our heart is God's home. The Holy Spirit resides within us, each of us. We're not alone, and we're not left alone to our own becoming. I remember thinking about the, the day of Quinn's surgery. I had posted something. It was June of last year, and I, I just simply said, Jordan will be in Riverside, California. Lisa will be inside the hospital because I can't. I'll be sitting in the parking lot up in my, my chair, and, and uh, Rochelle will be in, in Angola in a, in a master's uh, course that she's taking. And then I added, and God will be with us all. Through the Holy Spirit, God was with us all. It's amazing sense that we were not alone in all of that. God himself. So we desperately need the Holy Spirit to be filled and to be led. We're not alone. We're not left alone to our own becoming. He is working out Christ in us so that we might show Christ to others. And our prayer must become the desperate and expectant cry, come Holy Spirit, fill us, lead us. So we desperately need the Holy Scriptures to be Scripture fed, the Holy Spirit to be Spirit filled and led. And finally, we need the Holy Saints. We need each other. We need to be saint accompanied in our life so that we aren't alone. We are brothers and sisters, God's sons and daughters. We're a new community that is living out the new command of loving one another and applying that one command with all these other one another's of pray for one another, confess your sins to one another, serve one another, pray for one another, show hospitality to one another. We need each other. We are that new community made spiritually alive in Christ. We're dead in our sins and transgressions, but we're alive today. And sitting in this room are people whose bones were dried up, crumbling and brittle. And the Lord looked at you and maybe asked, can they live again? And they did. And they do. And they will continue. We help each other through intercession. We help each other through confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation. We help each other in koinonia, or in other words, fellowship. We help with hospitality of our presence, whether a word is ever spoken or not. Sometimes you just need to be present. So, I want you to imagine a church that believes dry bones can live again. With this question, what separates the church from every other group, every other organization that you know? And I mean, there's good organizations out there. There's good groups that are out there that are doing good things for people in need. But what separates the church from them? It's our insistent and persistent belief in a God who can raise the dead. Simply put. Our insistent and persistent belief in a God who can raise the dead. Because a God who can raise the dead can do anything. Don't ever forget that. We are the church, a collection of dry bones brought to life again through the breath and the wind of the Holy Spirit. There was a tweet that rang out on November 20, 2013 from a Christian apologist who reminded the church of the true power of the gospel. Here's what it wrote. Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good. Got it? Jesus didn't come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. Which is better? To make bad people good? Which is more powerful? To make the dead come to life. That's what Paul's talking about. When he says, I died to my sins and became alive into Christ. That's what you're saying next Sunday when you...
immerse someone into the waters of the Juniata River and you bring them out. Dying to their sins, coming out alive into Christ. These are dead bones that are living again. I want that, that statement. Jesus Christ did not come to make bad people good, but to make dead people alive. I want that to ping in your soul throughout today. We're the church, conceived by God, birthed by the Holy Spirit. The sovereign Lord took our dead and our sins humanity, and he made us alive into Christ. We're alive spiritually in every way because of Christ. We're the church of the resurrection. God's doing a new thing. His spirit enlivens our heart, soul, mind, and body that he breathes into. And God has put his spirit within us that his spirit, his spirit, beckons our trust in an omnicompetable, that's not even a word, in our omnicompetent, omnicapable God. If he did it before, he can do it again. If he's done it for them, he can do it for you. And if he's going to do it for you, he can do it for anyone. And to that, all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Lord, you know the gratitude in my heart just standing here in front of this particular congregation. These are truly brothers and sisters who have helped to sustain me over many, many years, our family over many, many years, and it's just a privilege to be among my brothers and sisters at Devonshire. Lord, would you pour out your spirit in such a way that individuals feel inflated, enlivened, invigorated, and whatever is uh, drying them out today, in the name of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, do your work. Do your work. Add vibrancy to what's dry. Bring to life what is dying. It will all be for your glory. And it will be for the good of many. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.